Blog Talk Radio. Oh, 
started innocuously. When my kids were in middle school, I got an email from the school saying, we're having a session next week explaining to you what we're doing to teach your children important life skills. And as a parent, that's irresistible. But that was the essence of the communication. Teach your kids important life skills. And if it had been more descriptive, I wouldn't be here today. But because it was so concise and so vague, I spent a week saying, what will they cover? What, in fact, should schools be doing to teach kids important skills that are useful in life? And I started making my list. And my list included things that were skills, like inventive problem solving, or communication, or teamwork, or figuring out complex situations, or characteristics and character traits, like determination, and perseverance, and resourcefulness being able to stand up to failure, being bold, or appreciating the wonder in nature and human achievement, or capabilities we all need, like setting bold goals for yourself, learning how to learn, being able to persevere through difficulties, finding your passion and purpose in life, and figuring out how you can make your world better. So I made that list, and I put it on a piece of paper, but I left a lot of blank space on the paper because I knew I would hear way more than that. And I wanted to take notes. I wanted to learn from this session. And I expected to be surprised. A and I was surprised. So, so the session consisted of the initiative that they were unleashing was 45 minutes a month. These middle school kids would go to a presentation run by the gym teachers. And they would pick the problem or the challenge of the month. And so if you didn't want kids to ever smoke, we would show the most grisly, gruesome videos of tar-infested lungs in advanced stages of tongue and mouth cancer, and some of that would be transformational, transformational to our kids. And so I left that session and, and, and somehow felt vaguely dissatisfied. And so when I came home, I started to think about my kids and their education. I'd always cared about their education. But I think like most parents, I had really focused on two things. I focused on how my kids were doing, what grade they were getting, and I focused on how much they were doing. Were they buckling down and doing their homework? But I never had stepped back and said, what are they doing? Let alone, how does it relate to life? So I made a great big sheet. I divided it into two columns. And I said, over here, I'm going to track things they're doing in school that help prepare them for life. And over here, I'm going to track things that are irrelevant. And I'm just going to pay attention and watch this over a matter of days or weeks or months and see what pattern emerges. And a bit to my surprise, the column on the right, the irrelevant column, was full and then some in less than a week. And when I say the names of things that were on it, you will immediately associate them with school. And the reason is because that's the only place you ever use them. Things like factoring polynomials, or gerunds, or Coulomb's law. The left, the column of what's preparing kids for life. I was doing my very best to give things the benefit of the doubt. But that column remained stubbornly empty. But that wasn't what really concerned me. What concerned me was that I ended up having to add a third column. 
And that third column was things that would jeopardize or impair a kid's prospects in life. And I knew something about that because I spent my career in innovation. And, and as a career venture capitalist, backing some of the top for-profit but also social entrepreneurs, people that want to make this world better, I knew two things with the utmost clarity. One was that innovation sprinting forward in a way none of us can even imagine. Every structured job in the economy, if it hasn't disappeared already, will disappear. And so kids coming through education simply trained to follow instructions and jump through hoops are kids that are going to be marginalized or chronically unemployed. And that's not 10 kids and 100 kids. That's millions of kids. But the second thing I knew is that this was a time of incredible opportunity. And if you look at the characteristics you see in every five-year-old, inquisitive, bold, creative, totally comfortable with taking risk and failing, if we could just preserve those characteristics, this would be the best of time for our young adults. But my list of things that were going on in school that jeopardized kids' prospects were all around that. And that we were actively in schools discouraging, eliminating those types of characteristics and traits. And so that changed my life. My life in many ways stopped. I stopped being a person and started to being a cause, much to the chagrin of my, my wife and kids. And, um, and I started traveling everywhere and meeting people and reading books. I watched every education documentary I could find. And in the process, I learned so much. And one of the things I learned, one of the things I thought I'd be discouraged about was the design of our schools. Because here I am staring at this thing that says, kids need to be good at X. We're making them good at something that's irrelevant. This is a big problem. But our schools actually were thoughtfully designed by very far-sighted people, people that anticipated a world that was changing. So in 1893, the committee of 10 said, the world is going to move from agriculture to manufacturing. There will be millions of opportunities for young kids that can do the same task over and over, efficiently and without error. But at the same time, Henry Ford does not need creative, bold, innovative assembly line workers. So let's organize a school to promote efficiency and routine execution of operations and let's discourage creativity. And that's the school system we changed to over the course of, the, of about a 20-year period from 1893 to the early 1900s, and it worked. And America became the most important country on Earth, and we created a robust and strong middle class. And we were the envy of the world. We saved the world in, in World War II. But then what happened, let's fast forward, is that the same characteristics we would hope for from the Committee of Ten somehow didn't materialize in the 20th century. And by, by the time we got to even the 1980s, it was clear our education model had run out of steam. So there was a report done in 1983 about education called A Nation at Risk. And that report had this telling sentence. It said, if our education system had been imposed on us by a foreign country, we would declare it an act of war. Think about that, an act of war. But what did our equivalent of the Committee of Ten, the philanthropists and policymakers and business people who could really influence education do? Did they step back and say, we are making a transition from manufacturing to innovation, and just as in the last century we changed our model, we need to change it again? That's not the, the path we took. That's not the choice we made. And so instead we said, let's take the same obsolete system and make it better by doing more of it more intensely. And let's test and measure more carefully. And let's not really give any thought to how relevant it is to life, but let's just put the pressure on our schools to catch up with South Korea and Singapore on these standardized test measures. And the results 
I think you all know, have been catastrophic. And you would think that being immersed in that for this period of time, I would be incredibly discouraged, but I wasn't. Because at the same time I was visiting schools, they were doing the most incredible things. It's not that we don't know what we should be doing with our schools. It's not that we haven't figured out how to prepare our kids for a very different world that we as adults grew up in. We know that. It's just that those are isolated pockets of great innovation and practices. And so what I said is my contribution to this should be how can I spread that message? How can I share that vision of schools that are schools of possibility and hope instead of placement and percentile measurement on standardized tests? And so the vehicle I chose to do it, I am not by any stretch a filmmaker, but I'm a believer in the power of film. And so I did a six-month search and I found a documentarian that I think is the best in the country. And I supported him and his, and his team for two years to film across the country in all sorts of situations, all demographics, all geographies, all age groups, and all types of schools, public, private, charter. I said, capture this story. Show our audience what schools are capable of. Show our audience what students and teachers can do if we trust them and let them engage and inspire in things that are authentic. And that film called Most Likely to Succeed premiered in January at Sundance. And since then, we've been to more than a dozen major film festivals. We've been at every important education conference. We've had more than a thousand schools request that film. Because when you're there, and I've been to 50 of these Q&As now, the re response of an audience, when they see school situations that are aligned with life preparation, they are so enthusiastic and so committed. And, and people over and over again are saying, this is what we need to do. And so what I'm doing going forward is I actually am taking this film to all 50 states. And so I called my wife last night. She couldn't be here, but I, here's what I said. It was a very short phone call because I was in between things. I said, Elizabeth, Fargo is awesome. <laughs> I, I, said, I said, we are coming back here. And I said, we're coming back here soon. But when I bring this film to a community, I can only do a small amount myself. I can be here, I can bring the film. But I have to, in the, in the words of Blanche Dubois from Three Card Named Desire, I have to rely on the kindness of strangers. And so what I'm asking this community to do, and I'm asking it in all 50 states, is to find the people who share this vision of what schools are capable of, and pull together an audience that includes teachers and parents and students, but also includes your communities, your state's own equivalent of the Committee of Ten, the people that make the most important decisions about the future of your kids, and let's communicate to them this important message. Our country is the most innovative and determined on the face of the planet in a time that begs for those skills. Let's educate to our strengths instead of chasing Shanghai and South Korea on standardized tests. Let's change the center of the universe in education from accountability and failed test measures and make the center of education be inspiration and engagement and trust and purpose. And let's carry the message forward to all schools that what we want you to do is to prepare our kids for life. So thank you.
welcome to Raising Independent Thinkers. This show is a space for families who are homeschooling or thinking about homeschooling. We'll explore alternative teaching methods, federal and state homeschooling laws, and most importantly, this show is a platform where families can inspire one another on how to raise independent thinkers. I'm your host, Bathsheba Omani, Montessori educator, homeschooling consultant, owner of Homeschool Guide LLC, and mother of two. Let's get started. Hope you're all having a wonderful Sunday. Today is September the 20th, 2020, and this is the Raising Independent Thinker Show. I'm your host, Beth Sheba. Hope your week is going well. Uh, my week has been awesome, very productive, no complaints. It's funny, I was thinking about my daughter this week, who is graduating high school early this year, actually in the next few months, the end of December. And it seems like it was just yesterday that she was a baby. So I'm very proud of her, mostly because she's worked hard on her studies and it was never a forced thing. Um, she was always the child that wanted to create her own homework at one point. she She's the one that will refuse to go out shopping, but instead practice her French. So now I'll have two high school graduates, and I'm very excited to see what they will contribute to the world. I do have to say that time certainly doesn't wait for anyone. So I'm really excited about this show. I'll be discussing project-based learning, continuing our series on homeschooling methods. I have a special guest who will join us later. Her name is Dr. Lena Callantine. She's a physician, an author, speaker, homeschool mom, and creator of Sci Experience, and that will be later on in the show. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the importance of learning these methods. We covered um, the Montessori method, the classical method, the unschooling method, and today I'll talk about project-based learning or the PBL method. And it's important to understand that not all methods of learning are right for your child. We all learn in different ways. I, I know for myself, I'm more of a verbal learner. I like to ask a lot of questions and write things down, which helps me process information better. So one of the biggest challenges um, for families who are thinking about homeschool is that they have so many options to choose from. Um, and I suggest that you continue to do your own research and learning about different methods. You can also listen to my previous shows on Hindsight Radio and go over the methods that I talked about. And as you're doing your research, think about the ways that your child learns best and which method best suits their personality. So the clip that you heard in the beginning is called Preparing Our Kids for Life, Not Standardized Tests. And the speaker was Ted Dentersmith. And I liked how he listed topics that we should be covering to prepare our kids for life in this new world because it's not the same world we grew up in. He talks about learning life skills such as communication, teamwork, perseverance, standing up to failure, setting goals for yourself, 
finding your passion in life. And I would like to add creativity, how to collaborate with someone, how to be self-disciplined, how to initiate a conversation. That's a, that's a good one. So Ted goes on to say how schools are not so much focusing on these skills and how the information that they're teaching actually, um, you know, doesn't necessarily relate to life. And I agree. I think that when we're focusing on topics and assisting our children, we should always think about how they're going to use this information um, for life in the future. You know, I wish I was taught at an earlier age things like how to negotiate with someone or how to how to plan or um, to start up a business. So that leads me to our topic on project-based learning, better known as PBL. PBL is one of my favorite methods aside from Montessori. Many Montessori teachers actually use PBL in their adolescent programs. So PBL is learned through the process of completing a project over a period of time using challenging questions that involve problem solving, decision making, time management, investigating, and the opportunity to work with others. So basically, your child is addressing real-world problems using open-ended questions. And as we know, children start verbally asking questions as young as the age of three, sometimes even younger. And it's funny how many times a child will ask a question that you have no idea what the answer to, and then it becomes an opportunity where you can both learn together. So what I love most about um, the driving questions are that they are open-ended, which means they can't be answered with a simple yes or no, but instead the questions lead to several investigations, which then lead to the child gaining ownership of their learning. So there are four steps in implementing project-based learning. The first step is finding that driving question, and this will help your child stay focused. It creates interest and wonders and a feeling of challenge. And it also helps guide the project work. So all the lessons and activities should help answer that driving question. The second step is the inquiry process, applying the learned knowledge, asking and answering questions, and finding resources. So depending on where your child is developmentally, you may need to help them gather information and develop research questions. It might be possible for them to team up with another child their age. That may that might be a family member or a neighbor or someone in a homeschooling group. And then you might want to consider what resources are available. Like, does your child need access to a computer for the project or what materials are needed? And make sure that those things are available. The third step is finding the solutions to the driving question and using models, presentation, and, and other creations. And I think this is the fun part because you get that hands-on learning. And we know most people in general learn best through using their different senses. So it reminds me of the science fair projects that I had to do in school. And of course, there were very limited choices to choose from at the public school I went to, but 
I enjoyed doing the research. I enjoyed shopping for the materials, coming up with my hypothesis and my conclusion, decorating my cardboard display, and presenting the experiment to the class. And I believe that it was in the fifth grade, I did an experiment on soda, where I had to examine how, you know, soda was made and which are the most popular brands and also what are the health effects. And I I had to learn about the history of soda and do a survey on um, which one was the most popular um, within the class. And that's when I actually learned that soda weakens the kidneys and the liver from the high levels of acid. <laughs> and come to think of it, as I got older, I never really was a soda drinker because of that. And that project experience is something that I um, didn't forget. So the last step is making the project available to the public. And as an advocate for homeschoolers, I like to think of innovative ways to do this. So one way is having your child present things, of course, to the family. Um, and it could be done in a special way after they're um, done with their project, um, choosing a special day where they can do this. Um, or for some kids who love art, they could be investigating a specific artist and find an art fair to present it to. Or um, you might have an older child that might be working on a project and starting up a specific business, um, like canning goods or making jewelry or, or something as easy as making lemonade. Um, there are so many different ways of presenting your child's project to your community. So I hope that you all enjoyed learning a little bit about PBL method. I'm going to take a short break. Stay tuned because when I come back, I'll have um, our special guest, Dr. Callantine, will be joining us talking about um, Psy Experience. I'll be right back. Looking at the sky, I see What is there in back of me? Oh, life resides and I just free A lot to be learned, just see The sun always shines so bright And in the night the moon looks alright Although the clouds don't always look all white Beauty fades in the sky, is night you could only see the sky For what it was You'll be hypnotized So go ahead and feast your eyes All because you realize What it really Clouds don't always look all white Beauty fades in the sky is my If you 
Dr. Elena Callantine. Um, Dr. Callantine, are you there? I am. Can you hear me okay? Okay, good. Yes, we can hear you just fine. Um, thank you so much for joining me this evening. And um, I just wanted to say that I acknowledge your hard work. And I think we don't do that enough as women in general. Um, I acknowledge that I can learn a lot from you, and I think you're doing amazing work. Oh, thank you. So thank I, you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. I know you're you're a practicing physician in Chicago. Um, you're also an author, a motivational speaker, a homeschool mom, a creator of Psy Experience, and I, I don't know how you balance it all, <laughs> but um, it must be some <laughs> kind of magic. <laughs> um, and oh, I read that you were off. What did you say? Oh no, go ahead. <laughs> well, I read that you were also an elementary school teacher at one point, and 
and then you went on to pursue your career in medicine. Um, and I was just wondering what made you change careers from teaching to becoming a doctor? Well, actually, the teaching career was a, a, a sidestep and a wonderful sidestep. So funny thing is, um, at an early age, I always wanted to be a doctor. So I, uh, as a child, struggled a lot, even as an adult with asthma. And so I interfaced um, with medical professionals very early on, and I had a, an intense love for science. So between that love for science and being around uh, medical people, I just gravitated, always wanted to be a doctor. It's the only thing I ever wanted to be growing up. And, um, you know, as you go through life, there are some people that encourage you and other things can be kind of discouraging. And um, I actually went to college on a full scholarship as an athlete. I was a basketball player. And it was really hard for me to get my um, studies uh, my lab work and my um, uh, co- competition and training uh, going together. So I um, didn't take my MCAT until after I graduated and I needed a job and I landed a job okay. as a teacher and, and started my master's at that time. So I, okay. I knew I loved kids. I knew I loved, wanted to be a pediatrician and to be a classroom teacher was just a wonderful opportunity, and it, and it just worked really well. So then I um, got my medical degree and, you know, pursued medicine for many years and then came home and became a homeschool mom and continued my teaching in many different facets. So, Wow. Well, I have to ask, how did you get past that discouragement of becoming a doctor? Well, yeah, you know what? I think as as a as a black female, um, there were I didn't have any kind of role models really for this in my life. I did have an under older brother that was pursuing medicine um, as I was going through, and he is actually a physician. My parents always made important education, but I remember coming home discouraged after college. Really, didn't think I had the mental capacity to do something like that. And my parents really kind of sat me down and said, um, made a big impact on me and said, don't put obstacles up for yourself. (laughs) They said, let them tell you no, but don't tell no to yourself. So I decided to follow their advice and apply, and I got in. So um, um, it was really at the encouragement of my parents to continue for me to follow my dreams. Wow, wow. Yeah, I mean, and I think we also have a lot of power um, within our own mind, too. So that's inspiring. Um, And I know that you're currently a a missionary doctor that serves the uninsured in Chicago. And I can can only imagine that a lot of people are losing their health insurance because they lost their job. But it must be fulfilling to be able to help so many people. Um, What made you decide to do that? Well, when I um, um, I actually had my first two kids while I was working uh, training uh, 90 hours a week as a resident, and wow. um, <laughs> it was it was a, a challenging time. And so once I kind of launched in my career, I just felt uh, a drive to come home. 
I was working in the ER, and I was emergency room, and I was doing several psychiatric um, appointments with kids each each um, each shift I work, and I had my kids mm-hmm. at home, and I was thinking, you know, what good of it is it if I'm the best doctor in the world and I lose my kids? So I really felt driven to go home. And um, when I went home, I still wanted to continue medicine in some kind of um, uh, um, in some kind of way. And there is a missionary clinic uh, for uh, people without insurance not far from my home. So I started volunteering there 14 years ago. And a lot of these people are working. Um, they're just okay. the uh, they're uninsured and they can't afford insurance. So it's it's okay. just a unique model. And it's uh, great fun to kind of do that. Okay. So so when did you um, begin your journey in homeschooling? I know you said you started while you were in school or? Yeah, I never, I never had a passion or wanted to homeschool. So I didn't come out. I know I had talked to many people who knew from when their child was in the womb that that was something they were going to mm-hmm. do. And I always felt like I couldn't be satisfied as a mom without my career. And um, I, once I enrolled my kids, in, in my two oldest kids in school, I thought life would get easier. And I, I saw that many teachers didn't necessarily have the same motivation that I had for my kids to be successful. And so right. I pulled my oldest one out after second grade, and my my next child was, uh, just finishing up kindergarten. So I started homeschooling them in first and third grade for the first time. And that was okay. scary, you know. So, But um, I am so thankful. So those two are now college kids. Oh, wow. Wow. So what, what method did you use when you were homeschooling? Yeah, there, there's lots of methods. And I guess what they would uh, categorize me as an eclectic teacher. So because I have two sons, and I'll kind of explain what you are, there's all kinds of different modalities. You know, it's kind of Montessori-ish. It's kind of project-based. It's hands-on. It's interactive. But the biggest drive of what I did, I didn't use one particular curriculum. I usually pulled from several different curriculums and designed my own curriculum for my kids based on their interests. So to be kind of collected is kind of – a teacher intensive, but I, I liked that creative aspect. There are lots of curriculums and things out there that can kind of it already planned and you can kind of open and go. But because my my sons were really kinesthetic learners, uh, hands-on, and that interest like typical uh, boys do, I constructed it around their interests. So I used a lot of different types of curriculum when I was going through yeah, and I, I think that's the best way because every child is different and there's no one way of doing something. So, Yeah, I um, absolutely so agree. Please, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Um, please, if you have any questions for Dr. Callentine or you would like to join in on the conversation, please call in at 425-569-5169 and press number one. Um, so, so tell us more about spy experience. Like, how did you get that started? Well, I, I, 
my experience was again, you know, it's funny how you, you have a plan for your life and things kind of go differently. Um, because I was so involved in traveling and speaking and active in the homeschool um, arena, and I was always mm-hmm. in that particularly have an interest in science, so I was always designing new curriculums, and I never really liked any particular curriculum, so I'd put all my my own little flavor in stuff, and particularly I did a lot of teaching as a physician on anatomy and physiology, and kids love it. So I would dissecting Mm -hmm. with kids as young as five years old, so I'd do brain and heart dissections and um, decided as I was doing it, way um, that I would take what I was doing and um, uh, solicited a publishing company and they picked it up and um, developed a, a curriculum, hands-on curriculum for kids and uh, readers on uh, the human body for uh, young kids. So it's very project-based wow. with um, um, and also it's project-based and also hands-on so that kids can kind of explore an interest in that particular topic. So that started uh, organically, Mm -hmm. oh, maybe about seven, eight years ago. Okay, seven, eight years ago. And what type of products um, do you have on your website? Um. Well, according, I have my four books. There are three children's books, and I, I think our publisher advertises for four through six, but I use it for K to eight. And I think the thing that makes people who, who aren't used to that kind of Montessori or that group kind of learning, um, it's they're mm-hmm. like, how is that possible? Um, and so many times the younger kids are read out loud as the older kids read. So they have the older kids read to the younger kids. And then there are activities that are prescribed for kids younger and depending on what the uh, skill level of the child. So they may create models like um, lungs mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of learn how to work those or uh, very hands-on projects in which they'll dissect um, hearts, lungs. So they're the types of hands-on things for some of the um, activities that are in the books. Actually, there are kits for doing those activities at home. So each of the kits on the respiratory, circulatory, um, and respiratory system have different organs and different projects that they can do hands-on in learning about the system. Wow. Yeah, I think um, that hands-on learning is so important for children. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you mentioned about your um, your models. Um, I was wondering about your books. I know you have a book called The Electrifying Nervous System. Can you tell us more about yeah. that book? Yeah. So, yeah, so I have actually four books. There's the um, – electrifying uh, nervous system, the breathtaking respiratory system, and the complex circulatory system. And basically, the books are kind of set up the same, um, similar format. It starts with a history of the system, how scientists discovered things, and with interesting um, different discoveries of different scientists. And then it goes into, from the history, 
it talks about um, some interesting stories. For example, in my electrifying nervous system book, there's a story about a very unfortunate character named Phineas Gage. And Phineas Gage had an, a, a horrible accident that killed him many years later, but he had a, mm-hmm. made an incredible contribution to neuroscience. He actually had a tamping iron get blown through his brain. And so kids love sick things, gross things. So we kind of talk about the physiology behind that. And so then we okay. go into the anatomy and physiology and typically talk about common questions that kids may have and gross jokes. So it's kind of up their alley. We might talk about some of the Guinness Books of Records and things like that. So it's, it's, it kind of comes at them fast and, and, and interesting. So the books aren't written like textbooks. So they can actually just be read or they can be used as a curriculum, depending on um, how you want to utilize um, the book series. They're called God's Wondrous Machines, and um, um, I had a lot of fun writing it. So there's actually a teacher's God guide that accompanies all the books to help you with the activities. Okay, wow. And you said that the um, the teacher's guide is, is easy enough for a parent to, to, um, to follow. Yeah, and it, what's kind of cool about the teacher's guide, which is different from others, it gives you a pacing if you like that and you want that kind of um, accountability. But it also, you can select activities based on your children's learning styles. So you can find mm. activities that interest them, kind of stretch them, and you might engage them in some other types of learning styles to continue to grow. So it, it's not designed, it can be a project-based thing, you can use it like that, or you can actually use a traditional with some quizzes and tests. So it really is kind of cool how um, the families or the teachers can really um, um, basically personalize that for uh, a particular child. Okay. So I think we, we do have one question, um, if you don't mind. Sure. Answering your question. <laughs> okay. Okay, we have Hello? 980613. Hello? Hey, hi, this is Akeem. Um, hi, Akeem. My question, uh, hi. My question, well, first off, hearing all of the accomplishments is amazing to do all of that and you know, be able to homeschool your children. I, I, I really, hats off to you for that. That's a lot. That's to be able well, to do thank that. thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, my question, like if someone was starting out new to homeschooling, uh, what was more successful for you? Be hands-on teaching the children or a more, you know, how, I guess, traditional teaching? Uh, I'm not familiar with all of the the terms where, you know, you know how classrooms are sit the kid down and, hey, this is what we're doing today. Uh, listening to you, it sounded like the hands-on was very popular and children were more engaged that way. Well, I, I guess can I ask you a few questions and I'll be able to answer your questions. Will that be okay? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So how old, are, how old is your kids and is this the first time you're homeschooling? I'm, I'm not really – I have a grandson, so my children are, you know, my youngest is uh, 13, about to be 14. So okay. um, I was thinking about doing this for my grandson. He's five. Oh, perfect. Oh, this is awesome. So 
what is great about it, especially if you're dealing with a five-year-old, they are the best scientists and learners in the world, and their curiosity is awesome. So at this particular age, the, the big thing is, the goal is, and you always kind of start with your vision with the end and in sight, is to make him excited about learning. And so with a five-year-old, the way I would typically handle them is to ask them, what would you like to learn about? And based on that, that's where you go. So, for example, I had one kid, one of my sons, was had this fascination with ants. He thought they were the coolest mm-hmm. things because how strong they were and, and things like that. So we actually um, uh, read about ants. Um, I looked up different things that might have some units on ants because the web, web uh, internet is great for that. And we also, because I live in Chicago, we would visit the field museum and visit the etymologist, the ant special, the insect specialist, and go see that. So one of the things I kind of cho- showed, starting out with my kids, is that the whole world is our is the place to learn. And I think what's one of the beautiful things about homeschooling is. Many times kids, when they're in traditional schools, they get a book, they tell them what to do and how to do it. And so if you're, as you're teaching your, your young grandson, is you find things that he'll be interested to read about and, and find readers and primers. So I, I say even at that age, you really don't need any particular hardcore curriculum. It's exposing him um, to using his hands. And, and typically a lot of boys are hands-on learners. But girls are too, and um, those are ways to engage. So I always ask my kids, what do they want to learn this year? And then we find resources on the web in the library um, to help facilitate that. And and so then he's oh, able to connect, okay. is learning with the world, and it gets them really excited. Okay. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that sounds good. That makes a lot of sense because when I was in school, you know, all of the years, I only remember the best memories was when we did science and you had to dissect. Yeah. And I and actually scored the highest in the class on those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and lots so. of reading to him. So, yeah. So, I mean, okay. I, I don't think you have to be about a cur- curriculum because okay. he's just going to open the world and just want to learn. Yeah. Yeah, because I also, like, I just bought this butterfly kit where you buy the, the caterpillars and they, Absolutely. You know, they, they get it. I just bought that. Actually, it came in the mail today and opened it up. He was he was excited seeing that. Um, yeah, so to I, learn I, about medical services. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, you would be surprised what advanced concepts you can teach to a five-year-old. I have taken real hearts and real brains from cows and pigs and have sat down wow, okay. and we talk about, you know, those types of things. So the, it really is open to what you can do. I don't think you can be limited by a kid's age. Right. Right. So where do you find these cow brains? You, you just, Oh, you, oh actually I have that on, on my website. Okay. Um, my web, my website, we actually have uh, hands-on kits that I use for kindergartners to high school. And it's www.sciexperience.com, and there are all kinds of hands-on kits, like on the human body. So usually for little kids, it's usually life science they like, like uh, 
bugs and the body and things like that. And that will really engage him and also increase his reading skills. Okay. Thank you. Good. That was great information. Um, Once again, that all of the things you did and are doing and and, and have children, raising children, that, that, that's uh, an amazing feat to to be able to accomplish that. Yeah. Got a lot of people that supported me. So thank you very much. All right, you're welcome. Hey, thank you, Akeem. All right, you're welcome. um, Thank you. Um, Akeem actually started Hindsight Radio, and he hosts uh, another show on Tuesdays called Truth Tuesdays. So so thank you. Um, It was a pleasure to speak with you, Dr. Callantine. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. And um, I'm not sure if you want to give out your social media info or your email. That's up to you. Um, I know you already mentioned your your website. Yeah, sure. If anyone is, wants to reach out and contact me, they can contact me at Lena, L-A-I-N-N-A, at SciExperience.com. Um, or you can actually contact me through my website, uh, www.SciExperience.com, and uh, go from there. Okay, so that's Lena. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, I'm going to double check because sometimes I get that wrong, but probably, um, definitely, it's uh, the Sci Experience website you can contact me through if you have questions. Okay. Yeah, I think you do have a contact on there as well. Okay, yeah, thank you so much, and um, I hope to talk with you soon. Okay, take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so before um, I end the show, I wanted to share that Akeem and I will be doing a webinar called How to Homeschool for Nationals. Um, You'll be learning specific information on how to get started, how to withdraw your child, submitting a letter of intent, how to record and grade, and information about standardized testing. You can register for the webinar at, on my website at www.home-schoolguide.com. Again, that's home hyphen, which is the little dash, schoolguide.com. Um, and again, that um, Dr. Callantine was amazing. Um, the product actually on her website looked like a lot of fun, so please check that out. And I also wanted to mention that on Hindsight Radio, which is the platform that I'm on, um, we have several shows during the week. So we have the Truth Tuesday show with Hakeem L at 7 p.m., and he talks about a variety of different spiritual topics, um, and it's very inspirational. We have the Solomon Show on Wednesdays at 10 a.m., and Solomon talks about health and wellness. We have the Divine Connection Show with Tasia and Jessica on Thursdays at 7 p.m., who also talk about a variety of topics that relate to everyday life and is also inspirational. We have Freedom Fridays with Akeem L. Jr. at 7 p.m., And we have a new show coming on Mondays that will be announced soon, and we're very excited about that. 
And of course, my show, Raising Independent Thinkers, is broadcast every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Okay, well, once again, I've enjoyed sharing this time with you all. Hope I have inspired someone today, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Tune in to next week's show, same day, same time. Be blessed. Been traveling these wide roads for so long My heart's been far from you Ten thousand miles gone Oh, I want to come near and give Every part of me But there's blood on my hands And my lips are in my darkness, I remember Mama's words reoccur to me. Surrender to the good thought and then wipe your slate clean. Take me to your river. I wanna go. Oh, go. As a man with many crimes come up for air As my sins flow down the Jordan Oh, I want to come here and give Every part of me But there's blood on my hands And my lips are unclean Take me to your river